Warning. Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. When we think of the most violent criminals in history, it is the image of a lone individual which is often conjured, a misanthrope whose evil mind hungers for the kill. But this same passion for death can burn twice as brightly when shared between corrupted lovers, a horrific pact which takes the often nurturing and benign feelings of companionship and warps them into the deadliest of intentions. A perfect storm, a psychopathic killer with dealings in the occult, meets a partner obsessed with romance, and she turns to fulfilling each of her lover's dark desires. The Lonely Hearts killers were a match made in hell. Between 1947 and 1949, it is alleged that they killed at least 20 women, with more assumed victims. Both killers led tragic lives, but their evil actions cannot be excused. It began with Raymond Fernandez. Originating in Hawaii, Fernandez served in the Spanish Merchant Navy and with British Intelligence Service during the Second World War, but on returning to America, he was involved in an almost fatal accident. A steel hatch fractured his skull, causing severe injury to his frontal lobe an area of the brain which is involved in intelligence, sexual desire, and decision-making. After being discharged from the hospital, he took to theft and was subsequently imprisoned for a short time. There, he shared a cell with an inmate who had a fascination with the black arts. Once released, Fernandez believed that he could use the occult powers he'd learned during his incarceration to exert influence on others, especially women. It was then that he met Martha Beck, who herself had experienced a difficult life. Martha claimed that she had been sexually assaulted by her brother when she was a child, but was then beaten by her own mother for the claim. After running away from home, Martha became an undertaker's assistant, perhaps developing a morbid curiosity with death at that time. Following a series of failed relationships which produced two children, Martha found herself unemployed in a dark and unstable world. To retreat from that world, she immersed herself in romantic films and literature. Falling in love with the idea of falling in love, Martha finally took out a Lonely Hearts ad in 1947, and Raymond Fernandez answered. He took to Martha and was happy that she was so committed to taking care of his every whim. That was when they began their cruel scheme to make money. They took out other Lonely Hearts columns with Fernandez as the piece of meat on display, the bait, if you will. He romanced the women who answered, eventually conning them out of money. But soon things turned sour. Martha hated the idea of Fernandez being with another woman, even if it was just a ruse. In 1949, she found one of the women, Janet Frey, lying in Fernandez's bed. Blinded by a fit of rage, she bludgeoned Janet with a hammer. Fernandez then finished the job by strangling her to death. So began the killings. Moving to Michigan, the predatory couple took up residence with a young woman, Delphine Downing, and her two-year-old daughter. One night, Delphine grew agitated, 
so Martha Beck gave her some sleeping pills. Seeing her mother become drowsy, Downing's daughter began to cry. In another fit of rage, Martha strangled the child. Believing that Delphine would see the bruises on her child's neck, the murderous pair decided to tie up any loose ends. Fernandez shot Delphine in the head. Days later, after enduring Downing's daughter's constant crying, Martha drowned the little girl in a bath. When the couple were finally caught, they denied having murdered an additional 17 people the police were suspicious about. Regardless, both Martha and Raymond were sentenced to death. Martha's final words make a chilling epitaph and were as follows. My story is a love story, but only those tortured by love can know what I mean. I am not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. I am a woman who had a great love and always will have it. Imprisonment in the death house has only strengthened my feeling for Raymond. Perhaps two of the most twisted killers of all time, Fred and Rosemary West left a trail of bodies in their wake in the United Kingdom, some of them even their own children. It was a crime which shocked the United Kingdom, a tale of incest, torture, rape, and murder, accounts which were almost too bloody to believe, but the facts are unwavering. Fred and Rosemary West were twisted beyond measure, Fred West was born on September 29, 1941. The darkness which consumed his life was present from an early age. He claimed that his father sexually abused his sisters and taught Fred how to have sex with animals. Some researchers also suggest that Fred was molested by his own mother from a young age. West himself claimed that he had an incestuous relationship with one of his sisters and impregnated her, but these claims have never been verified. Leaving school at 15, West, almost completely illiterate at the time, took up a number of physically demanding jobs on a farm. Soon after, he was involved in a motorcycle accident. It took him a week to come out of a coma, and he had a metal plate implanted in his head for the rest of his life as a result of the crash. It wasn't long until he had another serious head injury when he fell down a flight of stairs. He tried to molest a girl and was pushed away during a struggle which resulted in the accident. This was only the beginning of his twisted obsession with young girls. He was involved in a number of crimes at that time, including molesting a 13-year-old girl. Avoiding a lengthy sentence, he then married a woman named Catherine Costello and moved to Scotland with her and her child, Charmaine. There, they had their own daughter, Anne-Marie. Tragedy then raised its head as Fred ran over and killed a four-year-old boy in an alleged accident during his work as an ice cream truck driver. The family moved back to England in the aftermath where West had an affair with a woman named Anna McFall, who was a friend of his wife's. When McFall fell pregnant with West's child, she asked him to leave his wife. In response, West killed McFall, dismembered her body, and buried her. Because McFall was not a local, no one came looking for her. Eventually, Catherine Costello divorced West and left without taking her children. It wasn't long before Fred met Rosemary Letts while working as a bakery driver. Perhaps it didn't occur to Fred at the time, but he had just begun a relationship with a woman as twisted and murderous as himself. Rosemary's background makes for grim viewing. 
While pregnant with Rosemary, her mother was treated for depression with electroshock therapy. As a child, she was then ritually abused by her father and may have reciprocated this abuse on a younger brother. Rosemary's father forbid her from seeing boys her own age, so she took an interest in older men, one of whom raped her. When she finally met Fred West as an adult, he was 12 years her senior. Eventually, Rosemary and Fred married. They had a child together with Fred's two daughters from his previous relationship staying with them. It was here that Rosemary's aggressive behavior became apparent. Resenting taking care of Fred's other children, she treated them harshly and with contempt. In a rage-fueled tirade, while Fred was out, she snapped and killed Charmaine, Fred's adopted daughter. When West returned home, Rosemary told him what had happened. Instead of going to the police, Fred confided in Rosemary that he too had killed before. He then disposed of Charmaine's body under the kitchen floor and agreed to cover up the murder. Not long after, Fred's first wife, Catherine, came looking for her now-deceased daughter. Catherine, too, was murdered, although Fred and Rosemary never admitted to the crime even years later. Many suspect Fred was responsible as Catherine's fingers and toes were missing, something West did to his other victims. Fred encouraged Rosemary to have intimate relationships with other men, including her own father, sometimes for money, sometimes not. Around this time, Rosemary gave birth to another daughter, May West. They then moved to their infamous house of torture and murder, 25 Cromwell Street, where Rosemary gave birth to a further seven children, some of them Fred's, others the product of her relationships with her clients. Throughout the following years, both Rosemary and Fred were involved in at least eight more brutal murders, all young women who they brought into their home. Fred also began abusing his own daughters and even strangled one of them to death to silence her from telling people about her abusers. When the Wests were finally caught after one of their daughters had confided in a friend about the abuse, the police discovered the bodies of their victims buried throughout their home. It is suspected, however, that there may be other bodies, but Fred West took their names and locations with him to the grave. He committed suicide while in custody and was found hanging in his cell. Rosemary West is still in prison in the UK and will never be released despite claiming to be innocent. Their surviving children still fight to escape the twisted shadow cast by their vicious parents. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. That was how a judge described Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. They committed a series of horrific child murders between 1963 and 1965, and their crimes are still infamous to this day. Born in Glasgow, Scotland, Ian Brady was abandoned by his single mother and brought up by another family in her stead. 
As a teenager, he was caught committing petty crimes, but nothing that predicted the evil of his later acts. A man of above-average intelligence, Ian was seen as punctual, well-mannered for the most part, but short-tempered. He also enjoyed solo pursuits such as reading and increasing his knowledge. A favorite topic of Brady's was the Nazi atrocities during the Second World War, a subject that would bring him close to Myra Hindley, his partner in crime. She too enjoyed the accounts of Nazi crimes. Myra herself was born into poverty as a child, and when her parents could no longer afford to keep her after the arrival of their second child, she was sent to live with her grandparents nearby. Hindley's father was a veteran and believed that she should be tough to the outside world. When she was just eight years old, he even threatened to beat her if she did not retaliate against anyone who pushed her around. When she met Ian Brady at the age of 18, she was enthralled. They talked for hours about the murderous plots of the Nazis, fascinated with their vicious intricacies. Brady took an interest in photography and made his own darkroom, taking lurid photos of Myra. This was her break from the shy girl of her past, and she seemed to like it. As they opened up to each other about their deepest fantasies, Ian Brady told Myra that he would like to commit the perfect murder, a crime for which they would never be caught. And so they plotted and schemed, and soon they were ready to kill for the first time. Just before the murder took place, Brady had told Myra that he was ready to commit the murder. She drove around in her van at 8 p.m. looking for a victim, while Ian followed behind on his motorcycle. He signaled to Myra when he saw 16-year-old Pauline Reed, a friend of Myra's sister, walking alone along an empty street. Myra pulled up, offering Pauline a lift home. Once in the van, she asked Pauline if she wouldn't mind helping her find an expensive glove that she had lost out in the moors, a large area of countryside nearby. As Pauline wasn't in a rush, she said fine, and so they drove there. Once out on the bleak moors, Brady arrived and was introduced to Pauline as Myra's boyfriend, just there to lend a helping hand. According to Myra, Ian took Pauline out of sight for 30 minutes. When he came back, he led her to Pauline. She was lying on the ground with her throat slit, her clothes ruffled. Myra claimed she knew that Brady must have sexually assaulted her before the kill. Brady, on the other hand, gives a different account. He stated that Myra was there for the sexual assault and murder, and that she assisted in both. On the way home, the murderous couple saw Pauline Reed's mother and brother out looking for her, wondering why she had never returned. Later that year, the couple struck again. This time, they enticed a 12-year-old boy called John Kilbride into their car with the promise of alcohol. Then they drove, this time with the boy, to the moors once again. Brady disappeared with the child, sexually assaulted him, and strangled him to death. But the killers were not done. They kidnapped 12-year-old Keith Bennett, who befell the same fate. On the 26th of December, 1964, they targeted a young girl, Leslie Ann Downey, who was standing on her own at a fairground. Saying they needed her help to carry some parcels to their car and then home, they took her to a house where she was raped and killed. Her naked body was then dumped out in the moors. Both Myra and Brady accused each other of being the murderer after the fact. Their final victim was 17-year-old Edward Evans. They asked him back to Brady's home. 
There, Brady murdered Edwards with an axe and a piece of electrical cord. But Brady had made a fatal mistake. He committed the murder in front of David Smith, Myra's brother-in-law. It seems that Brady believed he had influence over the younger Smith, but although Smith agreed to help Brady dispose of the body the next day, instead, he went to the police. After further investigation, the police found an audio tape of Leslie Ann Downey pleading for her life for 13 minutes. Brady kept this as a perverse souvenir. Myra Hindley died in prison in 2002 of cancer. Ian Brady lived until May 2017 when he finally passed away at the age of 79. He had stated all along that he just wanted to die rather than being forced to rot in prison. That was a plea for mercy, but mercy was the one thing he did not show to his victims. Twins have always been something of a fascination to the public eye. People with identical looks and very similar behaviors. Who could possibly make a better partner in crime than your twin? A horrible mistake made by a police officer, a deadly warning that was foolishly disregarded, and a notorious pair who committed remorseless acts. All this and more on this episode of Seriously Strange. Identical twins Joel and Michael Stovall were known as loners in Florence, Colorado. Loners who liked wearing camouflage, carrying guns, and setting fire to their school. They were taught survival by their Vietnam veteran father and they loved every minute of their training. But it wouldn't be until September 28, 2001 when their community would find out just how violent the 24-year-old brothers could be. It was 8pm when Deputy Jason Schwartz was dispatched. He and a fellow deputy met up at the Stovall family get-together in Penrose where they quickly discovered that Joel Stovall fed up with his neighbor's dogs barking, shot the dog five times before throwing its body into the Arkansas River. He was arrested, but not without protests from his family. His twin, Michael, was also soon in handcuffs, and the brothers were put into the back of Schwartz's vehicle and taken away while the other deputy tried to calm the aggravated Stovall family. But a very fatal mistake was made. The brothers were not searched thoroughly before being thrown into the patrol car. Hidden on Michael was a homemade handcuff key, of all things, and two handguns, a 32 caliber semi-automatic and a 9mm semi-automatic. As Schwartz drove the twins to jail, Michael unlocked his restraints and pulled out a gun. Deputy Schwartz was immediately shot in the back of the head. The patrol car swerved off the road and into a ditch. The Stovall twins climbed out of the vehicle, freed from the handcuffs, and pulled Schwartz from the wreck. The deputy was shot 15 more times, 11 times specifically to the back of his skull. The two then took the shotgun from the patrol car and raced back to their trailer in Florence on foot where they loaded up on firearms and stole their neighbor's truck at gunpoint. Upon hearing of the deputy's death, the Florence police drove to the Stovall's trailer where they were immediately under attack. Joel and Michael fired at the 18 law enforcement officers hitting Florence Police Corporal Toby Bethel, his 
His car crashed into a tree as the brothers continued to fire. Bethel was struck a total of four times near his spine, resulting in permanent paralysis. As an ambulance rushed to the scene, the Stovall brothers circled back and watched, laughing and waving at the officers helping Bethel out of his vehicle. Then they set out west, with Joel in the driver's seat and Michael shooting in the back. The pursuit continued, but eventually they ran over a police spike strip, which punctured the tires of the truck, but the Stovall twins unloaded enough ammo to put some distance between them and the police and ditched the pickup. They fled into the mountains, but about 24 hours later, they returned to their stolen truck where they were apprehended. The two were charged with and pled guilty to one count of first-degree murder, one count of aggravated robbery, and 18 counts of attempted first-degree murder. They are currently serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole, plus 896 years. Two sisters who were destined for the kill. Tasmia and Jasmia Whitehead, also known as Taz and Jazz, may have been Girl Scouts and honor roll students, but they had quite a complicated relationship with their mother, Nikki Whitehead. Raised by their great-grandmother, Nikki's presence was sporadic at best in the twins' lives, and fights would often break out between the three. These fights, both verbal and physical, landed them in juvenile court many times, but on January 5th, 2010, Nikki finally won back custody of her daughters. Taz and Jazz were less than thrilled. The twins told a counselor that if forced to go back to their mother's home, they would probably end up killing her. It wasn't over a week into living with their mother where they did just that. It was the morning of January 13, 2010 in Conyers, Georgia, when the 16-year-old sisters were getting ready for school. Another argument had erupted in the house, and Nikki, filled with rage, took a pot from the kitchen and threatened her children. Taz wrestled the pot away, and the fight became more violent as Nikki grabbed a kitchen knife instead. The twins began to fear for their lives, and Jas grabbed a vase and smashed it over her mother's head, while Taz hit her with the pot. The three struggled, biting, punching, and screaming, at each other. The twins felt that it was either their lives or their mother's. Finally, Taz got hold of the knife and stabbed Nikki. After more fighting, Jazz began to strangle her mother with a ribbon medallion but was struck hard to her head. In a daze, Jazz grabbed the knife from her sister and took her turn stabbing. Nikki was finally too weak to fight, so the two sisters took her into the bathroom, placed her in the bathtub, and filled it with water. As Nikki was bleeding out and trying to keep afloat, she spoke to the twins, repeating over and over, I hate you, I hate you. A few minutes later, Nikki Whitehead was dead. Instead of phoning 911, the sisters collected their mother's purse and phone and put the pot and kitchen knife in a plastic bag. Then they went to school like it was any other day. The Whitehead sisters finally involved the police when they returned home, and a deputy found Miss Whitehead submerged in the bathtub, noting the smell of blood that filled the entire house. House. The 16-year-olds claimed that they had no involvement and were treated as victims for four months before finally being arrested. The Whitehead sisters were charged with voluntary manslaughter and both pled guilty in early 2014. Tasmia and Jasmia Whitehead are now serving 30-year sentences in separate prisons.
Twin brothers seen as a blight on humanity. Pete Bondurant Jr. and Pat Bondurant were identical twins living in Elkton, Tennessee. More commonly known as the Bondurant Boys, these men weighed over 300 pounds each and used their size to intimidate. For the first 18 years of their lives, the twins were inseparable. But after high school, Pete moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. He spent most of his time drinking there, and in 1975, Pete was convicted of manslaughter after stabbing two friends, one whom died as a result of receiving over 40 stab wounds. While Pete served out his sentence, Pat got a job at a local rubber plant and married a woman named Denise in 1983. Together they had two children and were content in their lives until Pete was released on parole and returned to Tennessee. The twins grew close again and soon the farmhouse became a place for local youth to party, drink, and use drugs such as Valium and cocaine. In 1986, 23-year-old Gwen Duggar returned to the Bondurant farm to pick up her car that she had left there after a party. Pete had convinced Duggar to stay with the brothers for a bit, giving her drugs until she was barely conscious. After doping Duggar up, both Pete and Pat took her to the bathroom and raped her one at a time. Denise Bondurant found the woman later and tried to send the girl away when Pat came upon them and beat the young woman with an axe handle. Pete then finished her off with two shots from a 22 caliber pistol, claiming to put her out of her misery. The brothers burned Gwen Duggar body in a 55-gallon drum and dumped the remains in a creek near the farmhouse. During an investigation, a collection of human bone fragments were discovered on the Bondurant property, leading the police to launch a series of investigations. It was discovered that in 1986, Pat had beaten his co-worker Ronnie Gaines to death. Pete helped his twin dismember and burn Gaines' body. His charred bones were buried in the twin's front yard. In yet another case, Pete Bondurant was convicted in the brutal murder of his girlfriend, Terry Lynn Clark. With the help of his ex-wife's testimony, Pat and his brother Pete are now serving their sentences at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison in Tennessee. That's all for this episode. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care, and enjoy your next episode.